0: What do pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common? These subjects have a home on Embodied, the award-winning podcast I host from North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. My name is Anita Rao, and you can consider me your personal guide to taking on the taboo. Join me to explore important questions about our bodies and our society, where nothing is off limits. So go ahead, listen to Embodied every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: pushkin this is talk easy i'm sam fragoso welcome to the show Today, I'm joined by writer and director Lulu Wang. Lulu broke out in 2019 with the release of her autobiographical film, The Farewell. It's set around a Chinese family that discovers that their grandmother has stage four cancer. And instead of delivering that bad news to her, they decide to throw a fake wedding so that the whole family can, in essence, say goodbye. This actually happened in Wong's family, And when The Farewell came out in the summer of 2019, it was kind of a runaway hit. I remember in the moment, it felt like a benediction for Wong, who had made one film prior and was struggling for years and years to get this passion project off the ground. Then, shortly after that, as you all know, 2020 happened. The pandemic halted, or worse, derailed the careers of many fledgling filmmakers, and yet, Wong kept busy in quarantine, eventually finding her next project in the pages of Janice Y.K. Lee's New York Times bestseller, The Expatriates. The adaptation, shortened to expats, is set in 2014 Hong Kong and is centered around three American women, Margaret, Mercy, and Hillary, whose lives intersect after a sudden family tragedy. Here's a clip from the trailer.
0: I just sometimes want to be alone. Where I'm not somebody's wife, not somebody's mother. Where I'm not defined by tragedy. Don't you ever miss it? Home?
1: I like our life here. (laughs) The help that drivers it makes everything easier.
0: I see his family.
1: You know, you always say that, right?
0: You're her employer, not her friend. You know, Hong Kong was supposed to be a fresh start for me. A fresh start, really? At 24? I think my marriage is over. Has David been home? No, ma'am. What am I still doing it? Do you ever imagine yourself living a completely different life?
1: That was from Expats, starring Nicole Kinman. You can now stream the first few episodes of the show exclusively on Amazon Prime. The series interrogates privilege and the blurred line between victimhood and culpability. It's a delicate balancing act, and one that I think Wong is uniquely equipped to handle as an expat herself. She was born in China, but moved to America in early childhood in the aftermath of the 1989 Tiananmen Square Revolution. We talk about that move to the U.S. at the top of this episode, as it shapes not just this new series, which is excellent, but much of the work she's been making for the past decade. We also get into her college years, where she began to find her own creative voice, the challenges and responsibilities of making work about your family, and how she lives and creates art in between two distinct worlds. That's all coming up next with our guest, Lulu Wong. Lulu Wong, thank you for being here.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: How does it feel to uh, be on the podcast?
2: I guess I'm excited, but also a little nervous.
1: I can sense the nervousness. (laughs) What are we nervous about?
2: I think just, you know, talking in general these days about there's just so much to talk about. And uh, there's just a lot of emotions with everything. And so um, this show in particular is um, really complicated and really personal. And so, yeah. Nervous about anything personal is always um, nerve-wracking to expose. Well,
1: why don't we just start with the new show? It's called Expats. Mm -hmm. Um, The first few episodes are now out on Amazon. It follows three women, Mercy, Margaret, and Hillary, all of whom have relocated from America to Hong Kong at different times and for very different reasons. But I want to begin with your reason, for taking on the project. You've said in recent press that you were, quote, terrified of getting it wrong and terrified of getting it right because this is a sensitive subject. So can I ask you, as we explain the show to people, if mm-hmm. you can for a little bit, what would it mean to tell this story wrong? And what would it mean to tell it right?
2: I think I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility as a peacemaker, uh, somebody who was raised as a peacemaker, as somebody who was always navigating different worlds, different languages, different cultures, different levels of privilege, whether that's between my friends and my family. So I think getting it wrong in the same way that when I made a film about my family, I didn't want to misrepresent them. I didn't want them to feel... Like, they had been misrepresented. And my intention as an artist is always to communicate the truth of what I know to the best of my ability. Mm. And so in expats, instead of just my family, it's now all of Hong Kong (laughs) that I feel responsible to.
1: Right. You got your family right in the farewell, or at well, least right enough.
2: Depends on who you ask, Sam, because my mom would tell you I did not.
1: <laughs> Why is that?
2: She thinks that I've portrayed my grandmother as being far too nice and portrayed her as being far too mean.
1: Sound like a mom yeah. talking about her mom
2: or her mother in law. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for various reasons, she just thinks that my understanding of china and chinese culture is incredibly limited that i don't have the capacity
1: although i would say that's pretty much embedded in the farewell i don't think you make any any other claims to that
2: right but that doesn't negate the truth for her (laughs) which is that um i i didn't and i will never have uh the capacity to understand her
1: We'll get back to that (laughs) towards uh, the back half of this conversation. Okay. Besides your mom not loving how you depicted your family, besides those doubts that are clearly playing in your mind a little bit, what were your doubts going into this project?
2: Well, first of all, you know, one of the things I admire the most about artists in general that come from countries with government support of the arts is that they're able to create a body of work. And it's something that I aspire to, is to continue taking risks and create a body of work that is always challenging and a new discovery for me an exploration. I'm not trying to just follow a career path. The Nicole Kidman of it terrified me, you know? Oh, like I've made this small family drama that's so Specific and personal to me. And mm. now I'm going to go do a Nicole Kidman
1: series. So let's let's back up. You put The Farewell out in 2019. Uh-huh. It's a film about your grandmother who has cancer but is not told that she has cancer. And instead, your family throws a faux wedding to kind of send her off. While you're playing that movie in the U.S., Your grandmother at that time still doesn't totally know that it's about her. Mm -hmm. You get a call from Nicole Kidman. What happened on the call?
2: Well, I mean, I didn't get the call just from her. I got the book. You know, I got some pages. So there was material that was sent over and... I read the book, which I loved, and actually I was touring. I was in Australia at the time, just by coincidence. So I was reading the book while I'm in Australia, which is where Nicole is from, and I love the book so much, and my producer, Danny Melia, is with me on that trip, and I keep talking to her about how much I love the book, but I'm not doing the show but I really love this, you know, I love this particular theme. I love this idea of like the perpetrator and the victim and that it's not a binary, but I'm not doing Mm. the show. (laughs) (laughs) So that went on for quite a while. And I told my reps that as well. It was the same conversation with them.
1: And were they confused as to why you kept talking about how much you loved it, but could not do it?
2: I think so. But, you know, at the time, we're sort of newer in working together. And so I feel like they weren't People now know that I work closely with know that I'm very open to being challenged, and I don't want people to just agree with me. But at the time, they were like, totally respect that, totally hear you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's it's kind of a nice...
2: I know, I miss that now. Yeah, let's say. I've opened it up for people to...
1: That sounds like nice treatment to me.
2: Yeah. So no, people didn't question it. And I, and then finally they were like, okay, well, can you just do a phone call? I think it's worth it at least to have a phone call with Nicole.
1: Uh-huh. And her pitch to you is what?
2: That initial phone call was just that, you know, we've been developing this for quite some time, looking for the right visionary. I saw the farewell and I knew immediately you are the person for this series, only you can do it. Yeah, she said all the right things. And I just said, I love your work. It would be a tremendous honor to work with you, but I just can't do it.
1: And why couldn't you do it at that moment?
2: It just felt too large in scope, perhaps. You know, maybe that sense of responsibility was too great after the responsibility I just... (laughs) dealt with on the farewell, you know, and I think deeper, it's like this imposter syndrome of like, oh, no, let me make something that's one step up from the farewell. I don't need to leap that far.
1: And this felt like many, many steps.
2: Yeah. Well, also, you know, I didn't know how to make it in a way where I wasn't directing all of them. So it was also daunting to look at it as a series. And when it was presented to me, it was also presented as an ongoing series. And so it was also about building up the confidence to say, these are the things that I would have to change. And I think there's a part of me that felt like they wouldn't allow me to. And then? And then we had dinner. And again, I said, you know, this is great. We're meeting. Maybe we'll find another project. And then it was at that dinner she was like, "Lulu, <laughs> that Nicole way, like you can have it. You do what you think is best, and I will support you, and I'll make sure that Amazon supports that vision."
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then it just became really hard. She's very convincing, Nicole.
1: Yeah, famously.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to say no after that because then I felt like wait a second, okay, if I can really do anything within the scope of this series, then it is an opportunity for me to learn, for my whole team to grow and to explore multiple themes. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I take on new projects, I have to feel like it's going to be a really exciting and interesting journey. Mm. Meaning that like, it's not just about, I know what I want to say right? That it's like, I don't actually know what I want to say. And it sort of terrifies me. And I have to dive in because this is a platform that'll help me explore all of these things.
1: Well, let's dive in a little bit because you've said your personal family history is mirrored in Hong Kong, in 2014 Hong Kong. What does that reflection look like?
2: Um, When my family... And I left Beijing in 1989. It was during the time of the Tiananmen Square Revolution. And I was six years old. And so I have very um, specific memories of it and, you know, obviously have read news and reports, but I've never had a space in which I had an emotional connection. And then, you know, when I went back to Hong Kong, like, it just brought me back to being six years old and the emotions that my parents and so many people felt and and just a, a sense of honoring mm. also of that moment. Um, and so, yeah, I think I just felt a kinship
1: there. Can we say with that because you, you're six years old. For the first six years of your life, you grew up in Beijing. Mm-hmm. In 1989, during the event you just described— you're on the bus to your grandmother's house in hopes of coming to this country.
2: Yes. At the time, we didn't have visas, and my father had his student visa, so he left before us.
1: What happened that that day on that, on that bus?
2: You know, the bus got pulled over, and a bunch of soldiers came on, uh, militia, with guns pointing in our faces and, you know, asking to see IDs. I think that they were trying to identify students. So, yeah, there was definitely a lot of fear. And I'd, I'm raised, my mother's a writer. My father was a diplomat. Right. You know, we're, we, we had never experienced anything like that before. Also, just not knowing that if we were ever going to see my father again, because mm you know, he had a visa, we didn't. And so it was in that moment, this sense of like, what if we never get out and he can't come back in? We just didn't know what the future was going to be.
1: So he goes to America, he goes to Miami, and the rest of you have to stay put for the time being. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering when you replay those, those years, or at least those early months before you came, what those images look like to you? What stays with you?
2: Quite honestly, I don't have a ton of images. And the ones that I do have, I can't tell if they're mine or if they... have Been told to you. Exactly. Right. And I've heard, too, that when you shift languages, because we define our reality through language, that when you shift languages at that young of an age, it almost severs your memory in a way because you no longer know how to define that world. And so I have a lot of gaps in my memory around those years.
1: When you do come to this country, maybe we can bring it back to the show for a second, and kind of exploring that time in your life that is a little bit fuzzy. You make this show, and you've described the writing process as therapeutic. And I guess I'm wondering, if it is like therapy, did you go into it thinking, I have this, this, and this to kind of work out or, or to map out?
2: Yeah, I mean, I wanted to examine this intersection, this um, particular city, which is a microcosm of the world, because there is so much diversity in it organically. And I wanted to look at all of these different lenses of the same place. But beyond that, and the themes and characters that I took from the book, I just felt like I wanted a writer's room that had enough, for lack of a better word, diversity that we could challenge each other's experiences and ideas. I mean, it's so rare to have deep, meaningful conversations these days in person. And so I say that it was like therapy because we would all show up and we brought all of ourselves, you know, everybody brought their own stories, their own experiences, their own traumas. And there were also a ton of disagreements. But in a writer's room, you have to work through those disagreements for the betterment of the story.
1: Mm. How would you explain the the dueling perspectives at the heart of this show that are on full display?
2: Um, Expats examines the intersection of a particular group of people in a particular place at a particular time. This
1: is 2014.
2: This is 2014. And so looking at that through the lens of race, wealth, nationality, class in general, and different kinds of privileges. Mm. I wanted to make sure that there was no binary anywhere. It wasn't like all the Westerners are wealthy and all the locals are just because that's not true. Mm -hmm. And so I really just wanted to look at the reality, which is here's a group of people. They all have privileges in different types of ways mm-hmm. and power or lack of power in different places. And I wanted to shift the audience's empathy from episode to episode. Mm. You might like somebody and then they do something you don't like. them, <laughs> And then maybe then you forgive them because then they do something else.
1: And and there is something profound that happens in, in watching the show where, you, where your own feelings do oscillate so rapidly back and forth that it does ask you to have a kind of radical empathy. Mm. And I'm wondering, this ability to, to hold dueling perspectives, does that kind of begin for you when you do come to America, where you do have to see your parents, like you said, a diplomat and a writer, you have to see them remake themselves, have to literally become a new person, have to take entry-level jobs, even though they're qualified for jobs much better than the ones they accepted. Is that where it kind of began, where you you experienced the duality of your own parents happening in real time?
2: Yeah, there are so many dualities in my life because, yes, there was the before and after the immigration. And there's also my relationship with my parents which is so close because we've we've left everything we know to a place where we know nothing about. And then I have to break away from them to assimilate. My parents were very um, adamant that it was important for me to assimilate.
1: When you land in Miami.
2: When I land in Miami. You know, they weren't the typical in the sense, oh, you have to keep the language. Like they wanted me to keep the language, but it was more f- important for them. And I've talked about this before that I... Saw America as my home. And because they didn't want me to spend my whole life feeling like I was out of place. And yet I was out of place. And I was constantly navigating, explaining to them about the culture while trying to figure a lot of things out for myself. You know, I didn't have the kind of guidance that kids usually have as you're growing up to learn about the world that you're in.
1: When you see your parents take jobs that you know and they know that they are more than qualified to do, I think for some people, it's hard to understand what that's like to see your family come here and have to accept an amount of heartbreak and humiliation that is agonizing. How did you make sense of their attempt to assimilate into America?
2: My father's always had a really good sense of humor but I've also seen him have some really, really hard years. I think it more than anything, it's not the work itself. It really is the power dynamics, the disrespect that they faced. And because people didn't care who they were before, what they do, or what they were capable of, they just saw them as employees.
1: Someone delivering pizzas.
2: Yeah. So my father used to deliver pizzas and he would deliver to the strip club. You remember the name of it? I think it was like red (laughs) lipstick or something like that. Something Mm -hmm. terrible. Or maybe I'm confusing that with Red Lobster.
1: (laughs) So he would go to Red Lipstick?
2: (laughs) But I think it was about the dignity of it. Like there were moments where people would ask him to do things and like what? Or they were just rude to him. I'm trying to remember one in specific, and I can't remember it right now, but he basically was like, fuck off and like quit the job. Mm. You know, I think it's like you're just a lot more fearful. You come here and you don't belong, and you are in a more desperate situation where you need things from people that you shouldn't be needing things from.
1: And growing up, did you... Feel fearful of of being in this country?
2: I really didn't feel fearful of being in this country. I think that I felt more fearful of the unknown in general. I didn't even know what kind of music I was supposed to listen to. Like, I had to go find everything. Mm -hmm. And so, in a way, I've shaped so much of my identity from a young age around belonging, as opposed to, like, actually figuring out what my own tastes are. Mm my parents would say you should play the piano and then
1: which you did starting at the age of four
2: which I did for like 20 years classically trained they
1: take you to the church every day to practice
2: yeah and you know I went to an arts high school for piano because there was a sense of guilt and if I didn't continue it somehow if I didn't manifest it into transform all of those years of practice into something useful Mm. and so my only reaction in in those circumstances when I feel stifled by other people's expectations is then I rebel. But rebelling is also not a true expression of who you are. It's just the antithesis. It's right. just- it's in react- Exactly. So much of my youth was fluctuating between those two things.
1: Why didn't you love playing the piano?
2: Because it was expected of me. Mm-hmm. You know, in some ways, if like I had chosen it, or I was given the permission to leave it. It's like a relationship. If you know, if you feel that freedom, you want to stay. If if you feel trapped, you right. want to leave. And my mom and I still talk about this because for her, it was um, a huge privilege and opportunity that she wished that her parents gave her. Right, and they didn't, and so she always envisioned that she would give this to her child. And so I feel very bad being like, it's a burden and it's your dream, not mine.
1: It seems like you still feel bad about it.
2: I do still feel bad because I know that she did it with the best of intentions. Hmm. And I know that she feels guilty when, again, binaries, right? When when it it doesn't feel like it was with the best of intentions. And she felt like she was burdening me with something.
1: In the beginning of this conversation, you you quoted your mother who said to you recently, you will never understand me. Is this one pocket that you still don't understand, that she thinks you don't understand?
2: I think she feels some degree of regret looking back. There's a sense of like, there were so many things we didn't know, and we did the best we could. So I think that's the emotional part of it. Um, And I know that, and yet I still had to carry what I carried
1: because of And she had to carry. And it didn't sound like you ever blamed her.
2: No. I mean, when I was younger, we say horrible things, I think, when we're kids. (laughs) The worst. (laughs) It's like looking bad. Horrible things.
1: Horrendous.
2: Yeah. It's just so much more personal when the sacrifice and all of this attachment, you know? And so, yeah. What? No, it's just. um,
1: What part of that makes you kind of overwhelmed with feeling?
2: Well, it's, um again, duality. Because in my own personal life and in my work, I need to move away from expectations of others and pleasing of others, as well as away from the rebelling against that authority in order to find my own self-expression. I think of it like Tuning a piano, tuning an instrument, these fine degrees of like, is that my taste or is that coming from my parents? Are these my values or is that just what social media and the culture is currently saying is the right thing? You know, and so I think more than ever, we have to be very vigilant about tuning into ourselves rather than all of the external world. And my parents have a really strong pull on me. And as I continue to develop work, I want to be respectful and I want to honor, but I also need to say, fuck honor, fuck respect, fuck polite society, and be truthful to myself.
1: And how does it feel saying that?
2: It feels liberating, but there's also this pain. I mean, I'll tell you, after the farewell, my mom... And I had a really hard time, not just because she didn't like the movie. I mean, maybe she likes the movie and she just has to say she doesn't to claim her identity (laughs) in my life. But she was criticizing me a lot about everything in the midst of the movie coming out and the success of it. And I just got so mad at her. I was like, stop, you know, and I yelled. and, And she said, I just feel like you're moving away from me. You know, there was some like premiere event and there was a, a VIP section with Rope and some fans came over and I was talking to them and watching that she said made her feel like I was no, I no longer belong to her and I belong to the world hmm. and I said but mom I never belong to you is the reality and I, so I think there's that heartbreak
1: tough to hold that
2: yeah She also gave another great analogy, I don't know if you've already heard it, about climbing a ladder. And she said, you know, when you first started climbing the ladder, I felt like, okay, what if she falls? What if she falls? And can I catch her? And she said, you know, after the farewell came out, I was suddenly shot up the ladder so high that she felt like if I fell, she wouldn't be able to catch me. And that terrified her.
1: Did it terrify you?
2: Absolutely. I don't think that extremes are good ever. And so whenever I see anything that is extreme, um, particularly as I get older and hopefully wiser, I feel like when we're younger, we want excitement. I'm so excited for this. I'm so excited to meet you. I'm so thrilled. Like it's all these very like high, high up emotions. And hmm. as I have navigated the most profound moments in my life they don't come from the extremes they actually come from a later or a reaction or reflection of some of those moments
1: well i think it may be worth um sitting with some of those moments if you're up for it yeah all right we'll do that right after this break with our guest lulu wong
0: What do pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common? These subjects have a home on Embodied, the award-winning podcast I host from North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. My name is Anita Rao, and you can consider me your personal guide to taking on the taboo. Join me to explore important questions about our bodies and our society, where nothing is off limits. So go ahead, listen to Embodied every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I want to go back to when you started to tune your own voice, so to speak, when you decided to become a filmmaker. This is late in college. You had taken a creative writing class, I believe. Initially, you thought you were going to be a lawyer. You had a scholarship to go to law school. Just hearing that my lawyer mother is upset (laughs) that you didn't take it.
2: She should call my parents. They're still upset about it. Don't worry. She's
1: still calling me for not doing law. <laughs> um, when we have other directors on the show, they like to talk about other filmmakers that have inspired them. Usually it's men talking about other men like Stanley Kubrick or Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino. Just a lot of guy stuff. The kind of stuff you'd see on the walls of college dorm rooms across this country. But you have a quote, and it's one that I I want to present to you here, where you said, I don't like the sense of worship that we have in our culture, of putting people or art on a pedestal. For me, I've always fallen in love with the process before any kind of icon or representation of something. So tell me, what did falling in love with the process look like for Lulu Wong?
2: I think that It took me a while because I needed to get the rebelling out of my system in a way. And so I partied a lot in college in the first three years while also doing the things that I was supposed to do, like getting fairly decent grades and taking all of my core classes, fulfilling all of the requirements. And when I got to my senior year of college, I felt like I had both finished all of my obligations and also had the sense of like, well, this is it. I'm going to go into the world and I'm going to have a job now. So I might as well take advantage and have a little fun and explore. And so I took all of these creative classes that I've always been wanting to take. I took photography 101. I took film 101. And I was also doing swing dancing at the time. Anyway, so... I didn't take it with any kind of expectation other than like, okay, I'm just going to get this opportunity while this education is paid for to take these classes. Mm. But I think being in those classes, as well as in the creative writing class, it was the first time that I was being asked about me. It was the first time where the tool isn't The piano and isn't, you know, the music that you're reading or the grade that you have to achieve and that result that you have to attain. The process was learning how to see. And so especially I'll say for the photography class, it's Mm. all about like what makes a photo a photo. Right. How do you learn to see and how do you develop your own eye?
1: And to that point, your vision had mostly been clouded by others.
2: Yes. And in that class, you know, of course, we looked at other photographs and other photographers, but not really. It was more like analyzing, Mm. putting an image up and asking, is this interesting? What makes it interesting? And then when you go out into the world, you take a photograph and then we would talk about why i was drawn to that image what the teacher would see in that image you know so there was just a real dialogue around like a particular moment and it was also freeing to be in the dark room or be in the edit on my first um super eight you know film it was just really like an exercise i haven't seen that one no i don't think you will It's not really out there.
1: Okay, (laughs) I'll try. I'll try try to find it.
2: I bet you will. Um, I've
1: seen the rest of them.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm sorry.
1: Which ones do you want to apologize for? Do you want to rank them in order (laughs) of greatest apology?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think that um, I was just like fumbling around, you know, and yet so proud of myself at that time, like. Oh my God, I've really done something. And my parents were like horrified. They were like, But you're so good at piano. You won the Chopin <laughs> competition and now you want to do this?
1: <laughs> you had done something. You had done something that you had chosen. Yes. It's okay if the first few were not particularly remarkable. There's almost no one whose first few things are particularly remarkable. In fact, it's remarkable if anyone makes anything remarkable. <laughs>
2: Yes, that's true.
1: Can we talk about actually how you did that or how you got to something as special as The Farewell? Mm -hmm. You go to Los Angeles after college. You intern a little bit, but you find that you're not particularly good at being um, a PA. No offense to you, but it just seems like not something that's just not your skill set.
2: Or an assistant in general. An
1: assistant in general. Yeah. And so instead, you find this job... Almost as a kind of bridge, I think, to your parents' dreams of becoming a lawyer, where you film video reenactments of clients who have been injured in some form or another. Videos that will then be presented to the court as quasi-evidence.
2: Mediation.
1: Mediation. Can you explain this job and what it actually looked like?
2: Uh, I had a friend in Boston who was an attorney, and one day he showed me a video that he had hired a company to make for him. And I was like, wait, how much did you pay for this? I said, you know, just in terms of the production value, it was very simple. Point-and-shoot camera, couple laugh mics. And I was like, I can do this better. And he's Mm. like, well, it's a very specific thing. So the specific thing of this video is that it is meant to um, show non-physical damage. So, for example, this case I did in Boston was a father who had been severely injured in a workers' comp situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And the damages were not just, you know, the medical bills, which is often included, as well as, you know, time lost from work. But also, when there is negligence, you know, like at this particular company, there was a real negligence that was identified, and this worker was injured, and he's no longer able to play baseball with his sons, you know, like, what is that value? And so, My job was to interview people who were injured as well as their family about these damages, emotional damages in their life.
1: And how did those interviews go?
2: The interviews are really vulnerable. I mean, people are always crying. And the tricky thing, too, is like what I saw in some of those videos is there would be like some music in the background and there would be these like mechanisms to try to like tug at the heartstrings and I think that, you know,
1: manipulations,
2: manipulation and I think that injury attorneys have that reputation often sometimes, right? Like of like, oh, OK, like, you know, this little case and you're going to blow this up and yeah. play the victim or whatever.
1: You bring a dolly in there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Um, And a lot of the competitor companies were much bigger established companies and they were shooting in studios with like a backdrop. And my whole thing was I would just go to their house and it would be very no frill and I would not use music or any kind of manipulating, but I would just talk to them and Mm. try to get to just something really honest and vulnerable and real and hope that that would translate to whoever was deciding on The Settlement.
1: What do you think that taught you about filmmaking? Because at that point, you hadn't made too many shorts yet. You hadn't made your first movie. Did that experience propel you into filmmaking? Did did it make you want to do it more?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker during that time, which is why I had the camera and um, equipment. But I think it just taught me so much about empathy. Again, like, I'm going into the homes of so many different types of people. You know, I did cases with all kinds of families and people from all walks of life. And so a lot of times I was showing up by myself with all of this equipment at a stranger's door, and I would be there for an afternoon and get what I needed to get, and that was it. You know, I did medical malpractice cases where, you know, I saw people in their most vulnerable state physically and emotionally. You know, I did a brain damage case, for example, where this woman was severely brain damaged, but if she was in court and talking, she would seem fine. But where the brain damage exposed itself is when she would take a carton of eggs out of the fridge, she would turn around and forget where she put the carton of eggs. And there's those little things that are so difficult to explain in front of a jury in a court or in a mediation room.
1: Why do you think people were so open with you?
2: I think I didn't look like any of the people that <laughs> they were d- used to dealing with, like all these lawyers and suits, you know. I'm like 22, 23, and just kind of me and showing up five foot tall, I guess I don't look intimidating, even though I was a racial tried. thing. I, I'm sure that plays a part of it. Like we all go through the world who we are and you start to learn both the superpowers and the weaknesses of that identity. Mm-hmm. And so being a five foot tall Asian woman, in a way, I've probably struggled with this complex of not being taken seriously Mm -hmm. my whole life
1: so were you taken seriously on your first film it's called posthumous it came out in 2016 Mm -hmm. do you feel like people took you seriously then
2: i think the actors took me seriously and i think my collaborators took me seriously but i think people in positions of power or authority.
1: Financiers?
2: Financiers, lawyers or whatever. I mean, even people that I've hired. And I'm sure it's unconscious.
1: I'm not sure of that. <laughs> well, I like,
2: I'm try, I guess I try to give them the benefit of the doubt.
1: No, we don't need no. to do that here. Tell me about the movie because I watched it. I had just spent, I think, like seven hours watching expats, the cinema of Lulu Wang, Which is unbelievable to watch how different your filmmaking is now from then. Because the only thing those two have in common, I think, is Jack Huston. Where does it land with you?
2: Well, I mean, the process was very different. You know, there were people that I was collaborating with and financiers and whatnot, and I'd never made anything. So I think that it wasn't an arena in which I was asked you know where do you want to take this like how far do you want to go right? right and i and ultimately i feel like that's not really anybody else's job to ask as an artist you really have to have the confidence to fight for that for yourself and and did
1: you feel like you didn't have it then
2: it wasn't just that i didn't have it it was also an obligation to you know what the genesis of that idea was and you know my partner who was financing and the type of film that I knew that she wanted to make
1: What did she want to make?
2: A romantic comedy. Like a classic, you know, screwball romantic mm-hmm. comedy, which is also something that I love. Yeah. I love screwball. And also I I didn't go to film school. I'd never really made anything, which is quite ridiculous. <laughs> to be on that set as the director having made nothing. I still
1: It is kind of amazing. Did you feel ridiculous?
2: I felt like I was on cloud 9 like I f- like both in a good way and bad way like I felt it was so detached from reality and mm-hmm. yet it was what was always supposed to be and yet it was also surreal but I think I just tried to treat it like a film school Like, I didn't go to film school, so I just thought, well, there's so much that I don't know about filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Like, I I showed up on the first day, and I had to depend so much on my DP and the rest of my crew, and it was an incredibly vulnerable place to be in.
1: I would say having Britt Marling star in your quote-unquote student film is probably (laughs) as good as it's going to get. (laughs)
2: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm so grateful to Brit and Jack and Lumber Wilson and Alexander Phelan. Like, I mean, so many of these actors who um, took a chance on me because of the script. But we really had no idea. I mean, I know people look at it like it's like a professional film, but it was really just me and Bernadette, my financier and partner and friend being like, okay, let's just do this. And hmm. we, like, it literally started with us going, okay, how do you get an actor? And I said, I think there's this thing called the, a casting director. And I, and she said, good, do you know any? I mean, that's how we started. Hmm. We, we, we were clueless.
1: So if that was your film school, moving forward, what do you feel like you learned? And what do you feel like you needed to learn after that?
2: You know, I met a lot of really good friends while I was working on that film, and one of my photographer friends, Nick West, said to me, he'll really appreciate that I'm shouting him out because he likes that kind of thing. Shoutouts? outs? Yeah. Like, he likes being acknowledged, you know?
1: I think most people do. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he said, you know, he was always, been always quite brutal and honest with me and for better or worse, but he was like, you know, I think you have to go more personal you know, that wasn't the environment for that. I think I was literally asking him to like watch a cut and give me notes. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you should go more personal, like your family, your history. It's so interesting. Why don't you do that? I was like, okay, that's not an edit note. Like this film has already been shot.
1: That's a hope for another film. Yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. But it did make me think more about like what I would do if I didn't have the constraints of like a genre. Mm. And if I didn't have any kind of constraints, financial
1: or otherwise. But doing something more personal, I think, brings us back around to where we started talking about the farewell because for years after, you pitched the film to American financiers who didn't totally understand it. You then pitched it to Asian financiers who said it was too American. Essentially, no one understood what or why you were making this film or wanted to make this film until you met Neil Drumming. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Who was at the time working for um, This American Life mm-hmm. and who himself is a filmmaker and, and former journalist. What happened when you met him?
2: Neil came to a screening of my short film Touch in New York. And afterwards, he came up to me and said, hey, I work at This American Life and I really loved your film and I just want to ask or tell you that if you have any stories that you've been dying to tell and you find that Hollywood is not giving you that platform, please bring them to me.
1: And how did you first explain the story to him that you wanted to tell?
2: Well, when I emailed uh, Neil, I said, so my grandmother has cancer, and my family has not wanted to tell her for many years. And uh, this is a story about me going to my cousin's faux wedding, which is kind of faux, kind of not faux. But anyways, he decided to have this wedding as a way to bring the entire family together so we could all say goodbye to my grandmother without her knowing that it was a goodbye. And in the short story, I talked about some of the scenes that were particularly iconic for me in my mind of what the story is about. And one of those scenes is my uncle repeatedly asking me, You know, your grandma's very sick. You know that she loves you very much. You know, she doesn't have long left. And kind of that repetition was like a dream that. I kept having, like I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would just see that scene so vividly. So some of those visual moments I also gave to him.
1: I think for context, why don't we take a listen to uh, another scene from your story. This appeared in This American Life back in 2016.
2: While I struggled with the grief of saying goodbye, nine I focused on the future a future she assumed she'd be part of. When you get married, she told me, I'll have an even bigger wedding banquet for you. She also asked when I'd have a baby, saying that she was looking forward to holding my child. I had no idea when any of that might happen, but I played along. We planned what my wedding banquet would look like and talked about how to balance my career once I had this hypothetical kid. Lying made me sick to my stomach. Listen, my mom tried to reassure me, your Nai Nai would appreciate that we're lying to her. Otherwise, why would she have done the same thing to your grandfather? This was the first time I'd heard of this. I was only 10 when Ye Ye was diagnosed with liver cancer. As it turns out, no one told him about his condition either. As his wife, Nai Nai was the key decision maker in that situation. He had severe jaundice and was barely lucid when Nainai finally gave him the bad news in the hospital. I need to tell you something, old-timer, she began. He succumbed to the cancer three days later. I asked my dad about this and he said, in truth, Yeya knew. No one told him, but deep down, people can feel when they're really dying. They knew and he knew, but everyone pretended not to know, so they could all allow each other to save face. So did 9 I also know. Was she also lying to us?
1: What did you make hearing that?
2: It's crazy. I haven't heard that since probably 2016. <laughs> yeah, it's... It feels like a different person. In a good way? Yes and no, yeah. I mean, I think, um, it makes me think about my grandmother a lot, who we lost. Um, and it makes me, you know, I often think, oh, I should have done more of this, or I should have done more of that. But listening to this, it's like, oh, we ha- we did have all these conversations. So I think I appreciate that. I, I still don't have the answers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm listening to myself as an outsider going, huh, was it her telling him that caused that? You know, it, it brings me back again to that question.
1: Mm. Before she passed, I, 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 one, I didn't know that she, she had, um, and I'm sorry to hear that. How did you two reconcile the film?
2: I honestly felt very grateful because I was grateful to have had the run that we had with the film. And we were coming to the tail end of it when the pandemic hit. Mm. And in a way, I needed to stop, you know, I needed to come down and I needed to deal with reality. I needed to deal with the fact that my grandmother is... Was sick and her condition was worsening, and I needed to just look at what all of this meant and how I was gonna move forward with such unexpected success.
1: What did it mean to you? You said that it sort of reinterrogated what the film meant to you and your family. What 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 did that look like going through that and reinterrogating all of that?
2: Um it's quite disorienting to be told for most of your life that all of your instincts are wrong. (laughs) Maybe that's too harsh of a way to put it, but um, in a way, like, there's, like, a real humility in Chinese culture where it's, like...
1: I fear if we don't laugh, we're just going to start crying again. (laughs) That's a lot.
2: Yeah. And I don't even know if it's people telling me or I'm somehow like taking that on. But it's like so much has changed. So when I was making The Farewell, this was 2016, right? Like a little bit before that. So it's not that long. Like seven years is not that long. And yet culture has changed so much Mm. that when you talk about identity or talking about a hyphenate story that's an American story, people are like, yeah, of course, of course, not all American stories are white. Like, that's an of course now. When I was preaching The Farewell, it was not that. And I say my whole life because I was wrong in my family. I'd be like, well, this is American culture and this is how that, well, they're wrong. I'd go to an American culture, I'd be like, well, my kind of food we eat and these are the, well, they're wrong. And so kind of I'm always the outlier in both of the situations. Mm. And I don't know why, but I, I guess this is the peacemaker in me. I'm always arguing the opposition, you know, even devil's if I'm, the devil's, I guess the devil's advocate, but it's not really I don't like to say because I don't know if it's the devil's. It's my family. I'm like, I agree with you, but this is how my family see it. I think they're also right. And I think you're also right. And yet, you know, I get yelled at on both sides.
1: And What does this mean for you in, in this film, though? Or what did it mean for you in this film and how you reckon with it?
2: Oh, well, you know, then I make the film, the film that for so long, so many people told me was never going to work. I mean, even while making it, there was so much fear and I so appreciate how much support I got considering the level of fear. But, you know, I've always had to navigate not only my own fear, but everyone else's fear around me. You know, my parents being in American society, you know, my friends coming to my parents' house for the first time and not knowing all these things. And so there's always trepidation that I'm trying to carry for other people. And so on the movie, I had to constantly fight for something that I instinctively knew was right, but there was no evidence of. Like what? Like the fact that even though the film was going to be 75% in Mandarin, that people would still be able to relate, that they could read subtitles. Then the only way to do that is to let go of the fear and have almost like a blind faith (laughs) that it's going to work out. But of course, the fear never really goes away. And so you have to let go of all expectations in some ways. You know, you have to tell yourself that so that you can do the thing that is scary. Yeah. So I think that just, I when the film came out and so many of my instincts were proven right, it was just disorienting. Of like, oh, wait, so how do I shift how I'm listening? Like, how do I shift my, my openness? Because I'm a very open person. And so how do I, maybe I need to ha- put some limits and protections around myself so that I can Practice listening to myself and listen less to others. And what are the methods in which I can hone that instrument? Because it's not one that I grew up using. And I'm always trying to navigate this balance of collaboration, which is so incredibly important to me, and listening to my own voice. And so sometimes when I listen to a lot of people, sometimes that might look like, oh, she doesn't know what she wants. And I've heard that. You know, oh, she keeps asking other people. It must be because she doesn't know what she wants. But it's actually because I know what I want, I want to um, stress test it. I'm honing the yes and no's, like, to be quicker. Yes, this. And I started doing that on The Farewell, you know, because when we were selecting a cinematographer all of the producers were sending me lists and lists of people who had won all these awards and been at all these festivals. And I didn't want any of them. And I think there was a lot of uh, frustration of like, why are none of these people on all of these lists that's good enough for everyone else, Mm. not good enough for you? You know, which can sometimes feel condescending. Mm -hmm. And there's no evidence of why. I just said, I don't feel it. Mm. And is that okay? And it took a while, and then when I saw the work of my cinematographer, Anna Francesa Solano, she had no credits that were notable in the narrative feature world, but I just felt a connection. Mm. So I think it's just continuing to hone and having the courage to go seek as opposed to just being handed things, I guess.
1: And for this new show, do you feel like you've gotten better at all those things you're talking about? Do you feel like this, this program, which is six episodes long, does it best represent the sound of your voice?
2: It does. You know, it really does. In all ways, like thematically, structurally, the structure of it is actually incredibly personal and important to me and was one of the biggest challenges because I said that I could only make the series if I could make episode five central. And I don't know why it was episode five. I have no idea, but it just came to me. And I just saw it as six episodes and this mm. and and in the penultimate episode, we were just gonna completely flip the world and flip flip the perspective
1: and why did you have to make that episode?
2: Because it is the other side. If we're going to talk about dualities, you know, it's expats. The show is called Expats. Expats live in a bubble, often of wealth and privilege and a separation from the local culture that they're in. And the only way to really understand that that bubble is to actually break out of it. Because if you're just in the bubble, that is your world, this fish tank. Mm. You have to step outside to go oh, actually, they're in a bubble. And so episode five is the one where we break out of the bubble and we shift our empathies. And it makes you reconsider all of the feelings that you've had previous to this when you saw it through one particular lens. Hmm. And I think that's something that I am doing constantly in my life and is shifting from world to world, perspective to perspective. And so it was my way of um, taking the audience on that journey.
1: It's interesting because you're bringing back so much of what we talked about at the uh, at the top of this conversation. And as we go, I'm thinking about the the shifting that we keep going over and over again, the duality, mm-hmm. this idea of wanting to belong, not quite belonging, trying again, failing again, that seems to animate so much of your life and in turn so much of your work. And I wonder, to drop us off at a vivid image, Does that really start for you at the age of six when you come to this country and you have to walk into school in that classroom, Mm -hmm. first day in an American classroom, and the morning announcements begin? Mm -hmm. Is that where this sort of all starts in some way?
2: Probably on some level, yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's about rituals, right? You come to a new place. My first day of school in the United States, you walk in and you're not dressed like anybody else. You don't speak the same language as anybody else. I'm pretty sure that my mom put me in a dress because that's what (laughs) they wear in China, I guess. I don't know. They don't do that in Miami? It's like short, like little, no. Which is also her way of fitting in because my whole life before then she dressed me up as a tomboy she really liked that but she for school put me in this like awkward schoolgirl skirt Mm. but yeah and then you know you get there and everybody's there's an announcement everybody stands up and do they still do that they start playing the star spangled banner
1: yeah i think i think so in pledge of allegiance
2: oh, yeah, that's the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, but did they also... Yeah, anyway, so then... But I just remember... like, Like blaring through the speakers and my teacher running over to me and taking my right hand and putting it on my chest and been in the country for like how many months and suddenly you're pledging allegiance to this like, you know... It's just all fascinating, right? Like looking at it now, but yeah, at the time, it was just like... Oh my gosh, there are so many things that I have yet to learn, and I'm never going to learn them all.
1: You said once, in that moment, coming to this country, that you lost a sense of belonging, a sense of wholeness. And from then on, after moving to the States, it's been trying to rediscover that feeling, trying to feel whole again. And as we leave, I'm I'm wondering, have you? Have you?
2: Okay, I don't know if this answers the question, but I feel like I've talked to a lot of people who stayed in their home countries and also not feel whole. I think that I've found my wholeness now, but it's really because I I think I've found that sense of wholeness now through a different kind of belonging. You know, my friends, my family here, community of artists that i deeply respect and trust and people like yourself you know it's why we invite people to our homes to break bread and my brother is a chef and he's opening a restaurant in LA this year called firstborn
1: wow we're giving him a shout out
2: god <laughs> I gotta I got help him from uh, Nick West
1: is that who else he <laughs> yeah my
2: friend Nick West <laughs> Um, but this one's really important. Yeah, no, but, you know, I, and I love that my brother and I actually do the same thing, mm. you know, which is that we tell stories through our art and we're in the same city and we bring people together through our two forms of expressing our family and our love of mm. our family and where we come from. And it feels not like what I expected it to maybe when I was said that quote. It feels like an evolution from that. And Barry? And Barry, of course. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, of course. And again, you know, um, he and I and my family and his family, you know, when we spend time together, it is incredible because, you know, again, there's just so many differences and we can focus on differences. You know, you can sit in a room with anyone (laughs) and focus on differences and you'll find them. But having our two worlds collide, both in work and in our personal lives, has been incredibly replenishing.
1: It almost sounds like—do you, do you want another word?
2: Yeah, I'm trying to find the right word. I don't know what it feels like. It feels, um, it feels whole. It feels like— um,
1: I mean, it could be the wholeness that you're talking about. Yeah. That, that the quote was— getting at Mm -hmm. also could could just be love
2: yes I mean I know that's (laughs) such an overused word and so sometimes maybe I'm hesitant to say that in the fear of it sounding trite but yeah love I've always had this vision for myself you know that ride in the amusement park where you're all sitting on swings and then the whole mechanism raises and spins
1: I, I have motion sickness absolutely not
2: But you've seen it from afar?
1: I would get sick looking at it.
2: Okay. (laughs) But you know what I'm talking (laughs) about in theory? Okay. (laughs) Well, I don't know why, but I've always had this vision. And, you know, much of that feeling inspired the farewell of not belonging. And what does that even look like for me? Um, But I had this vision uh, of that spinning swing amusement park ride because I thought, oh, as long as I have a center, as long as I have some kind of a route, that'll actually allow me to go further out mm. because I have a place to come back to. And right now, because I don't have that center, I have nobody and nothing waiting and nothing that is kind of the core of my life. I feel like I'm gonna um, spin out into space at any moment. And so I think that I'm now in a place where I really feel like I have that core. And so it gives me so much courage to be able to go even further and even
1: higher. Well, I think you have gone quite far on this podcast, (laughs) in this new show of yours. And I want to thank you for inviting me into your home and into your space and really for inviting all of us on this program into uh, your life, which you have shared very honestly and vulnerably, which is a scary thing to do.
2: Thank you very much. And you are always invited to our home. There will be (laughs) lots more meals to be had and dogs to pet.
1: Great. I'll bring the bourbon this time. Deal. Lula Wong, a pleasure.
2: Thank you.
0: pole dancing, AI chatbots, and diet culture all have in common. These subjects have a home on Embodied, the award-winning podcast I host from North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. My name is Anita Rao, and you can consider me your personal guide to taking on the taboo. Join me to explore important questions about our bodies and our society, where nothing is off limits. So go ahead, listen to Embodied every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: and that's our show if you enjoyed today's episode be sure to leave us five stars on spotify apple wherever you do your podcasting if you'd like to go above and beyond sharing the program on social media sharing it with a friend all of this really does help new listeners Find the program. I want to give a special thanks this week to Paula Woods, Amy Fam, Amazon, and of course our guest, Lulu Wong. You can watch the first three episodes of Expats now available on Amazon. If you'd like to learn more about Lulu and the new series, be sure to visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear more conversations with other great filmmakers, I'd recommend our talks with Ava DuVernay, Steven Soderbergh, Hiro Morai, Janik Bravo, and Benny Safdie. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs they come in cream or navy or a vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz. you can do so at talkeasypod.com slash shop. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Krisha Shenoy. Our photographs are by Julius Chu. Research assistant by Sharia Aranke. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Starrs, Kerry Brody, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, Greta Cohen, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Frigoso. Thank you for listening to the show. I'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay safe and so long. I'm David Remnick, and each week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from The New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to The New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.